The conference finals got off to a wild start last night in Denver. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks, also your home of the Stanley Cup playoffs. We're bringing you all the conference final games every evening here on 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Uh, and Drancer, you know, I I know there was a school of thought going around before last night's game that, you know, the, the hype for the goal-scoring fest that's going to come, it's getting out of control. Let's not be ridiculous. This is going to be a bit of a, a change-up here. Take the under. That didn't last very long. <laughs> that did not last very long because that looked exactly like the kind of hyper-speed, out-of-control goal fest we were all kind of crossing our fingers for last night between well, Edmonton and Colorado. Especially when the overset at 7. <laughs> seven, which first of all, whenever, and they doubled it up. Well, and whenever you see a full number, right, a full number, you always like that as a hockey better. From what I understand, since I don't bet on hockey, ding. But from what I understand, that's what you're looking for because even if you're kind of wrong, you you might get a push, sure. right? So seven again for game two. I don't know how they didn't adjust it. <laughs> I don't know how they didn't adjust it. Seven seems low at this point particularly given the uncertainty now around Darcy Kemper. Um, goaltending optional. I, you know, for me, this wasn't... This wasn't the scoreline's going to read 8-6. But it wasn't an 8-6 game necessarily for me. It was, you know, more of a 4-5, like a 5-4 sure. win in, in terms of form. And then both teams got an extra 20% bump from the quality of goaltending. If there's a concern for the Avs for me, it's that they keep letting teams back. You know, they step on they step on their opponent's neck. They build this huge lead, this three-goal lead, reminiscent of the one they built against the St. Louis Blues in Game 5. And then it's still dicey somehow late in the game. Well, you know, you can't do that. You might get away with that against the Oilers, but I'd, I wouldn't trifle with a gentleman named McDavid. No. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to trifle with, with, with that dude. But I also definitely... Don't want to give up a game in that manner to a Tampa Bay, to a team that's, you know, structurally sound enough that I know that they're going to end the games that they should win, right? Like if the Tampa Bay Lightning are up, they're going to win the game. They're not going to let you back in. Colorado's going to have to tighten that up, I think. Not not to beat the Oilers, because the Oilers are the Oilers, but definitely if they're going to hoist the cup here, if they're going to beat the Tampa Bay Lightning team they're most likely to face in the next round, they're going to have to be, they're going to have to just be better in terms of holding on to leads, sucking the oxygen out of games, playing 20 minutes of just like sharp transition hockey. It's not fun, especially when you can play like the Avs scoring at will and just sort of turning mm-hmm. the game on its head in a, at any moment, but it's what they're going to have to do to win a cup. I thought last night that Colorado looked clearly better than Edmonton, right? That's no that's no big surprise. Shocker. But they controlled, you know, they controlled the puck, they controlled scoring chances, shots, all of that. They were and they clearly scored better. At will. Like it, like that McCarr goal with a few seconds left. I know the offside play and I really I, I think we should limit our offside talk, but we yeah. have to do it because we're sports radio and yes. we care about hockey. But um but more than anything, it's it was the fact that the Avs had just sort of taken the lead or just lost the lead, just coughed yep. it up. And 
just were able to come out and just like end the Oilers. It was just like, oh no, we're not doing this. Like this is you're not going in and feeling good about yourself for 20 minutes. And then they score in the first minute of the second again, and at that point it's kind of curtains, right? Two goal lead. Um, it felt like they could turn it on and just beat the Oilers whenever they needed to. You know, that for me that was sort of the defining mark of that game. For me, overall, as I said, they were the better team. They weren't the better team by such a degree that you look at it and say, Oh, they're you know, they're home free now, right? Because as no. you said, because they you know, the other team has Connor McDavid. But the difference is I think that Colorado clearly has another gear that they that they can get to, and I'm not sure that uh Edmonton does. And I know there was, you know, some there, there was a case to be made going into this series that Edmonton's depth was actually not as big of a disadvantage in this series as you might expect compared to Colorado's depth, yeah. but I, I thought that was kind of disproved in a big way last night, and one of the players I want to highlight, and I, I know this text came in uh, from Marcus and Gibson's, that Edmonton's defense looks a whole level below Colorado's, and we all know about... We all know about what Devon Taves and Kale McCarr can do, but Bowen Byram, I thought, had a fantastic, fantastic game. And that's such a critical role now for them without Sam Girard in their lineup. And really, the way they divvied up their minutes, Colorado, was kind of like a instead of a top four and a bottom pairing, it was almost a top three yep. and a bottom three. And Bowen Byram was the third guy in that top three, and he acquitted himself really well. And that's vital for Colorado. Well, and Canucks fans are used to seeing that, right? I mean, the Canucks rolled a top three this past season. And one thing you're going to see the Avs do, because we saw them do it in the last two games uh, of the Blues series after they lost Girard, um, they're getting some, you know, carefully curated offensive zone start shifts with Byram and Makar on at the on the ice at the same time. I think they're a little more hesitant to do it because of the against the grain threat that McDavid sure. poses. So we're seeing Taves and, and Makar. Uh, certainly last night we saw Taves and Makar hard-matched in a very real way against McDavid, Avs having the benefit of last change and using it to full effect. Um, But you are going to see Byram step into that role. Part of that is going to be an increased offensive role. Like, we're going to see McCart... Sorry, we're going to see Bowen Byram's minutes go up even further when the Avs are trailing. He's going to become their break glass in case of emergency. You know, we'll see more McCarr and Byram if the... If the Avs need a goal, yeah. and that's and that's sort of exciting, right? Like we're going to see some probably some Taves Manson minutes and some loaded top pair, you know, go go for a broke um, offensive attacks if the Oilers take a lead at some point, and that'll be a ton of fun, and and it's a huge opportunity for Byram who has dealt with a myriad of injuries, obviously uh, local connections through the Vancouver Giants. Just great to see him play, but great to see him play this well, particularly given. Not just what he's gone through, but also what he could be oh, in man. this league. I mean, this is a this guy has it all. He's got the size, he's got the wheels, he's got every single skill in the book. He is, uh, you know, he's got a chance to be one of those close to perfect defensemen, um, and you certainly want to see him get to that ceiling. What a luxury for Colorado to have as well. <laughs> like, oh, we Goodness. lost Sam Gerrard. We'll just boost Bowen Byram, former fourth overall pick. Yeah. Who's, yeah, as you we said, have, has all of the assets you could possibly want in a defenseman. We'll, ju- we'll just give him a few more minutes. One of, one of the best young defenders in the in the sport. Yeah, nice nice job, Colorado. That's a that's that's good work. And they yeah. got them both in the same trade. I mean, ridiculous. Jeez. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online. At DunbarLumber.com, uh, Reg texts in, Dan Riccio took the under. What a fool. LOL. 
Uh, yeah, we were actually out watching the game as a part of a, a 650 get-together, and uh, Riccio was pretty disappointed with his underbet early in the game. So we got to see that unfold in real time, which was a delight. Uh, we also got to watch the Kale McCarr sequence and goal and offside review unfold in real time so, as so a group. Set, so set the scene quickly. Though. Yeah, so we're at we're at the bar, and there's, we're watching. There's very little time left in the period, and yep. a goal has just been scored, and attention kind of turns away from the TV among the group, right? Yep. People sort of start talking. I was kind of the only person watching it really closely at that point. You And you said, we all saw the goal and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe they scored again. And you said, that might be offside. Immediately. Yeah. You, 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 you had seen the play develop and said, okay, hold on. There's something going to, there's going to be a review here. They're going to look at it, basically. And they did. Yeah. No surprise. And we all basically, you know, <laughs> we saw the review. And I think to a man, pretty much, we all said, oh, okay, they're going to call that back. Right? Yeah. That, that's, that's no goal. That was clearly offside. And then when they pointed to the ice and signaled, it's a good goal, we all recreated the the Travis Green reaction meme, right, from when this happened to the Canucks against Boston. Right. <laughs> and he looked goal. up from his tablet and was like, what? What? And yeah. we, we pretty much all did that. Uh, and then we kind of had the same reaction and debate and discussion that everyone else in the hockey world started to have oh, at that point. So, so here's the, the debate seems to be centered on a few main topics. Quick takes on them. Was it intentional from McCarr or did he get lucky? It wasn't completely intentional. I don't think, but I think he knew that it was close enough that he didn't take the chance. So I think it was a smart play, but I'm not going to say he's some, um, you know, well, he is. But I'm not saying that was like a genius level. That wasn't like a a level of cunning. That wasn't wasn't like a Iago level cunning from Kale McCarr. Just a a little Shakespeare reference for your your Wednesday morning. But I think he knew that it was close enough that, that he had to play it that way. Uh, brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff from the from the young defenseman. Um, offsides in general. I dislike the review far more than the confusion or any inconsistency or anything. Like I kind of like the touch up because I like the idea that there's some doubt that I don't know. Here's my big issue with the offside the, with the way that offside reviews have impacted the game, Jamie. I pride myself on doing exactly what I did. Well, we were having a, a beer yesterday, which is, yeah. I pride myself on knowing when a play is offside. Like, I pride myself on it. I watch the game closely. I, I you know, oh, that might be offside, that might be offside. I, it registers for me on every entry, and I watch entries closely. That's part of being a, a huge hockey nerd. And when a play comes in, and it's somewhat offside, I get this knot in my stomach where I'm like, okay, it kind of doesn't matter what happens here. I'm in this no-man's land. Of of minutes where it you know if a team's under duress it's like yeah but I don't even know if this goal will count anyway yeah and I find that it diminishes my enjoyment and it diminishes the stakes of what's occurring whether or not the goal is going to count or not whether or not it's in fact offside once you isolate it with the Hawkeye it changes the incentives for me as a as a viewer and enjoyer of hockey and I think that's a big issue like I think you're basically taking you know four to five minutes of every game spent in the in in one end or the other where you should be on the edge of your seat being like oh my goodness this is a huge moment in this game and and sort of polluting it a little bit that's my biggest problem with the offside review and i don't know how you get rid of it without getting rid of offside reviews period which for me is something worth considering the touch up inconsistency i don't i don't have any problem with that like that that to me is fine, and then there's the the school of thought that's like they shouldn't have offsides at all, and I think the unintended consequences of that would be significant. I think you'd actually end up with more dump-ins. 
I well, think I think it would be like you know when they removed the red line and people are like stretch passes, yeah. And instead, the only thing teams do with that new luxury is shoot at for, shoot for like 150 foot deflections into the zone to go for a change. Right? It's like it hasn't actually made things more exciting. It's just like, ooh, I wonder if that forward's going to get a little bit of contact on that puck that's being shot down the ice, or if there's going to be an icing. Like that's the only thing we're getting more of as a result of the red line coming out. I think it's. Never underestimate hockey as a sport to take a rule change designed to make things more fun. And make it more defensive instead. And, and, and instead take the, to take it to its most boring possible conclusion. Well, so I think that's what would happen if you... Quickly on the, on the no-offsides thing, and it's a kind of popular contrarian idea out there. I, I have no issue with it if, you could only, if, it would, if it was only on the rush, right? So we're not going to be concerned, okay, was the puck over first or was this player's skate over first by a millimeter... Whatever. I'd have no problem eliminating that. I think the problem would arise that you're talking about is when teams get set up, if the offensive team doesn't have any incentive to hold the blue line, you're going to see their defensemen sag off a lot back into what is currently the neutral zone, right? right? And I think that's the kind of unintended consequence you're talking about where, oh, wow, it creates so much offense, but actually it would disincentivize their defensemen from getting closer to the net and, and trying to create offense and they would sag off and be more defensive. So that would be, to me, would be the big problem with that one and, and why I don't think it makes a ton of sense. On the problem with um, just the review process in general, for me it's just, and, and this text came in actually from Marcus and Gibson. He says, should the NHL review all goals much like the NFL reviews all touchdowns and turnovers automatically, the NFL's process is quick and saves teams from having to challenge and potentially go shorthanded. That's from Marcus and Gibson's. And my only problem with that is if you're a, a, an NFL fan, you know the feeling of, oh, the team scores, but hold on, before I react, before I commit emotionally, before I celebrate, let's see if there's going to be a review here. Yeah. Oh, because maybe his knee was down at the one-yard line, or uh, maybe he bobbled a little bit going to the ground, and the referee single touchdown, and that's great, but hold on. And just that experience of the cool thing happened, but I can't actually react, I can't cheer, or I can't be upset about it because there's this review process hanging over the whole thing, that sucks. That's just not fun as a sports fan. And look, it's not fun to have big calls missed in big moments either. I understand that. I understand why replay review happens. But I don't I I haven't watched a lot of hockey this year and thought, man, you know what we need more. We need more replay reviews here. Uh, so I we were, we were, went to the Vancouver Canadiens game yesterday and it was the first game I've ever seen with a pitch clock and I quite liked it. Yeah. It it accelerated things. So here's my here's my point, uh three point plan to to fix reviews in the NHL, okay? Plan one, keep the challenge but remove the penalty. Though that's too steep. Yeah. The timeout is should be a sufficient disincentive. You know, if you're calling a timeout to challenge a play, um, or if you're going to lose your timeout if you get it wrong, you know, that to me is su- sufficient. That dramatically impacts your endgame strategy. It means that you're at a disadvantage the rest of the way. It means you can't stop the game if momentum's going away from you late. Um, you know, there's a ton of... I think that's sufficient. I think the penalty is an overcorrection and something we don't need. That's point one. Point two, and I'm stealing this from an Avs fan named Jibble Scribbits on <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, Jibble Scribbits. And Jibble Scribbits has this view, and I think it's dead on. This is like the most common sense thing ever, which is when you go frame by frame, it's easy to prescribe intent where, in fact, there is none. And it's easy to be like, oh, well, that is, you know offside by a half millimeter when you know materially it's not offside i think you should get one opportunity 
to review the play. The ref should get one opportunity to review the play. They should, and and it should be at real and at real pace, at real pace. So it's like you watch the play. Is it material? You get a you get a second look. You don't get a like Zabruder film yeah. like tick 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 frame by frame by frame. Oh, it's offside by um, an immaterial amount. You get to watch it once, and you and you determine it off of that. That for me should be the standard. Um, and and as a result of that too, you get you know, 15 seconds, because you only get to watch, you're getting, it's not a, it's not a goal review, it's not a replay, you get a second look, and it takes 15 seconds, you get 15 seconds max, you get to rewatch the play, and you have to determine it in real time, and then the broadcast, I mean, it's a little unfair to referees, but it's not more unfair than it used to be, where it was the eye test, we have the technology for people to quickly get a second look on an iPad, but we don't, we shouldn't have more than that, and if we need more than that, by the time a review goes to the point where you're like, watching every frame from four angles to determine whether the fact is is that once you get to that point what you're looking at didn't impact the play didn't impact the spirit of the play so that's my that's my three-point plan no penalty no penalty 15 second clock on it and have to review it once and in real time that's it that's it make it make it that and we'll speed it all up and then you know you're not even going to get a full commercial break in and and still be in the review when you come back with everyone being like, you know, like they were What's in that going Tampa on? Bay game the yeah. other day where oh, it's man. just like... Where it's stretched on and on and on and on. And it takes all the momentum away from the product. Yeah. Like, like, you know, plays are going to go against you. Calls are going to go against you. This is a, a variable sport with a ton of luck influencing outcomes. We don't need to be perfect. We don't need a perfect officiating standard. We just need to catch... You know, the the classic Matt Deshane five paces offside, right? You, you get a second look in case you really, in the linesman really messed it up. Protect catas- protect the referees from catastrophic human error. But you don't need to go to this perfection system that we've adopted, not just in hockey, across sports. Yeah. Because um, it's, for me, it's just gumming up the game and bogging it down. And... What, there do is this, what do you think? What do you think well, of my common sense so three point? I actually plan? like it a lot. There is this weird process where when you when you slow things down, and this happens a lot with um this happens a lot with people when you review like hits to see if the guy was diving or something, you know what I mean? And you slow it down so much and you're like, oh, look how far he threw his head back. And it it looks so much worse when you slow it down, but that's just kind of what happens when you get whacked in the face when you're skating a million miles an hour and you're not expecting it, right? Everything looks intentional when you see the guy have like, or, or you know, the guy gets hit in the face by a stick. Yeah. And then it's like a couple frames later, yes. they start to throw their head back. And, and you're like, oh, it was, it was, he's embellishing. It's like, no, that's just what it looks like on slow motion. You don't like, have you ever been hit in the head? You yeah. don't know what happened right away. You know what I mean? You're like, ah, wait. And then you look around and then you're like, ah, I got hit in the head. That yeah. sucks. You know, like it, it anyway, I, it, it's, it actually, replay it, is a scourge where, where it actually like strips the context out. It makes it almost harder to uh, get a better understanding of what happens as much as you're like, oh, we have to see it. Can you see any, you know, can you see any white between the skate and the blue line? Like it just, it, it prevents you from actually getting to the root question that you're trying to answer. And this, this text comes in from Marcus and Gibson's as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I think it's a great point. He says Major League Baseball is struggling with base runners getting tagged out once they pop up from the bag. It goes against the spear of the rule. Like Drancer said, the player is materially safe. And I think that's a great example, right? You slide into second base and maybe there's a split second where your knee came off and you're not actually in contact with the base and the player has a, the you know, the fielder has his glove with the ball on you and technically you're out. 
But until replay review, did was anyone ever watching a baseball game and thinking, oh, that's a major problem. We need to get rid of that play. No! Nobody cared about it. Unintended consequences. It's been entirely invented by the replay review process, and that's how I feel like about a lot of these offside reviews, too. They've been there. We've invented problems to solve by looking at every play in this minute detail. I get it. And as you said, your plan would still preserve the ability to reverse calls that are just like, holy cow, that was absolutely ridiculous. We can't have that. But that's the point, right? Like, we're not, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be looking for reasons to take goals off the board. We should not be holding people to a standard in terms of what's onside or offside or what's goalie interference and what's not goalie interference that's beyond what, you know, that, that's minute, that's, that's essentially immaterial. What we're trying to guard against is catastrophic human error, right? Yeah. That's that. That should be the standard. If something is truly heinous and unfair, it should be reversed. But that's it. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be like you've got a video coach with a Hawkeye camera positioned along the blue line, who's like, "That might be it," and then they get four times to review it before the coach puts the the challenge in, and then it gums up the broadcast for seven minutes while they sort it out. I mean, that can't happen. That's a level of um, that's a level of checking that's that's beyond what we need. And I think the Blake Coleman kick-in example is a really good one. If you watch that another time at full speed, you would say, no, not a kicking motion, but yep. he did he did kick it in. And that goal stands for me. Yep. So, that, and we had a texture here. Blazer from Kelowna says, I totally agree. That disallowed Calgary goal at full speed was clearly a goal. Clearly right? a goal. It's only when you break it up that it's like, oh, I can see him swing a little. He's on one foot. He's in a battle. Stop it. Stop it. We've gone we've gone too far. We've allowed we've allowed the advantages of our technology to outpace our common sense on this front. The the fundamental thing that we should be protective of is not the integrity of results to a perfect machine standard. I mean, what do people always tell me about the about the games when I bring up numbers? Like these are played by humans. Yeah, yeah they're also officiated by humans. We actually should accept that the standard of fairness that applies to the games is human and not not you know te- technologically based. It's not a computer. These are not. We don't have robot referees. We shouldn't have robot referees. That's not the standard here. What we're looking for is like basic fairness uh, adjudicated promptly in a way that facilitates the the flow of the game and the quality of the product itself. Protects the quality of the product, and we've allowed protecting the integrity of rules called to a semantic extreme to not ruin, but certainly to have a, a you know a deleterious yep. effect on the quality of the broadcast, the quality of the fan experience watching the games. That, to me, is an example of technology run amok and our ability to break things down outpacing our common sense. I think there is just this... <laughs> And again, not to keep making the analogies to other sports, but I think a lot of a lot of sports are going through this issue. Everyone working is going through, through this, this. issue yeah. in real time. And I always come back to this. Uh, with like, the, I hate VAR. Yeah, with the what is a catch question in the NFL. Oh. And, and there is just something alluring about the simplicity of, I don't know, does it look like it should be a catch? It's like, yeah, okay, then it should probably be a catch, right? And like with the Blake Coleman goal, it's like everyone watched that and thought, oh, yeah, that should be a goal. 
So it should probably be a goal, right? Like, rather than looking for reasons why it shouldn't be, we should probably just accept what our eyes are telling us and allow those types of plays to stand. And then this text comes in. I think this is a really good point, too. Even with this system that takes so long to determine the call, we have calls that no one can agree on. In the last two Euler games alone, there were two calls that basically divided the hockey world. I think that's a really good point. It's not as if you're eliminating controversy, right? It's not as if Oilers fans woke up today and said, you know what? I'm glad they looked at that. They got it right. I can rest easy. They're still ticked off about it. So you're not even eliminating that by doing this. Uh, And one last thing is that a controversial call is not a bad thing for a league. People people get worked up, but it's something to talk about. For long-suffering fan bases, you can dwell on them forever. You know, like, it's grist. It's grist for the mill. It's just that we've applied this perfect standard, so then the criticism gets amped up if it's like, Oh, well, that was hard to see. We understand. You know what I mean? You ha- you only get one chance to watch it in real time. Let's be comfortable with human error and set up a system that protects against the most catastrophic examples and then move on with our life in a way that also gets our runtime, the runtime of games down to a, you know, um, like a, a more commercially digestible level. That's yep. that's the goal. That's the goal. I'd love to see the NHL figure it out. Um and not just the NHL. This is not an NHL-specific No, thing. it's a sports-wide thing. It's right? a sports-wide Everyone thing. is grappling with these questions. Because and it's why I don't want a robo-ump. No, I want robo-umps for I balls don't. and strikes. I don't want robo-umps. Oh. Well, have you seen how the umps are doing this year? I have. It's Oof. brutal. It is awful. It but is I still horrific. don't want robot-umps. We might disagree on that one. But the thing is, and the reason... We're going to move on from this in a second here. But the reason why every sport is grappling with this is... There is a very legit, there's very legitimate interests on both sides. Like, I think everyone agrees getting more calls right is good, right? And that's why every sport rushed to adopt video review and replay review in some form, because it's a bummer to have big, big moments and big games turn on blown calls. But we're also dealing with, as you say, the unintended consequences of that now. And look, we're not going to solve it right now. No sports are going to solve it soon, but it is something that we're going to, it's going to continue to be a point of contention. And I think the NHL has to keep looking for ways to tweak it and make it more appealing uh, for fans. Lots of great texts coming in on this. Keep your thoughts coming in. 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Ian says, you guys are reviewing this point in too much minute detail. Fair enough, Ian. Fair enough. We got, <laughs> um, got that, off on a little bit of a tangent there. That's what we do. Yeah, it's Sports Talk Radio. So, hey, what are you going to do? Uh, we will be back, though, on the other side with lots more conversation about the conference finals. I want to talk a little bit about the style of play we're going to see in both series and what effect that might have on other teams around the league as well. So keep your thoughts coming in. Uh, It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here with you for another half hour. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Tons of great feedback coming in in the first segment when we got into the offside review situation, the Kale McCarr goal from last night. Uh, This one comes in unsigned. It says, any call that upsets Oilers fans is fine by me. So there we go. That's... uh... That is a Canucks fan weighing in on the allowed Kale McCarr goal from last night. 650-650, you can continue to get your thoughts in at the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And I want to keep talking about that game, not just specifically what we saw last night, but just kind of the idea of this series and these two teams 
playing against each other. Because obviously, Drancer, there's the the headline item of McDavid versus McKinnon and McCarr and Dreisaitl. And then that's before you even get down to a player like Mikar Rantanen and Nazem Kadri in the year he had. And, you know, what Evander Kane is doing in these playoffs so far, right? There's just so much skill and talent. But even beyond those kinds of big-name players, I think the thing that really stood out watching that game was the speed that both teams played with. Um, and that's all we've known that from Colorado. Uh, Edmonton, obviously, with McDavid, is always going to be uh, have that element of speed in their lineup as well. But it's really, it's really interesting to see it play out in one of the two final series, or you know, the the semifinals for the Stanley Cup playoffs, because we're not always used to that, right? Where like the cliche is, this is the time of year where you got to have the size, you got to go to the the refs start to put the whistles away and all of that. And, the, you know, that, that's why Florida went out and traded for Ben Sherratt because look what he did in Montreal's run. And LOL. Yeah, that, that didn't work out so well for them. And we're seeing a very, very different. Not that there's not big, tough players. Of course there are. I mean, Nathan McKinnon's an absolute bull. Leon Dreisaitl, when, uh, when he's at full health, is a the, monster. The Avs went out and traded for, um, excuse me, uh, Josh Manson. Yeah. So uh, a similar trade. It's just that they got Josh Manson at the rate, like for the return that a that a player of that caliber in that Ben Chirot mold should cost yeah. with a third and a prospect as opposed to the, what was it, a first, first. second? Yeah. No, but it was a first, second, and another asset uh, for Chirot, which is just a home run for Montreal. By the way, Brett Kulak, better deadline acquisition than Ben Chirot. Not even close. Not even close. He's, he's, been, he's been excellent. He's, he's been really, really brought a good wrinkle to the Oilers' uh, defense. Obviously a former Vancouver Giant, UFA. Left side defenseman. Very interesting. Been been deep in the playoffs in consecutive years. Brett Kulak, he's on my list. He's been on my list for a long time as, like, undervalued guy. Uh, every list I've built of, like, undervalued defensemen who the Canucks could target. He's always, he's he's like a mainstay on my, oh, he's a good guy that could target list. Anyway, Brett Kulak's been awesome for them. And you know who else has been awesome for them? Cody Cece. I'm not, Cody Cece's been blasted by the analytics community for years and years, but He's actually been pretty good for, like, three or four. Mm -hmm. Like, his last season in Ottawa, the season that he had in Toronto, and this season in Edmonton, and now he's he's a top-pair guy for the Oilers. And honestly, he's probably their second most effective defenseman for me. Like, you know, probably, yeah, I mean, you take Darnell Nurse first, but Cody Cece's probably been their second most effective defenseman in this playoffs. He's been really, really good. Really, really good. Uh, shout out to Ken Holland finding those pieces <laughs> on the blue the, line. The, the Cody CC bet has worked, like really, really worked well. Of their off-season moves, that's the one I like most, uh, particularly because I think the downside is far more limited in CC's case than it is in Hyman. For like, Hyman there are yeah. going to be there are going to be seasons here. I, I love Zach Hyman as a player, but there are going to be seasons here. Like I don't, I, I know what he's doing in the playoffs. I, I know he's a remarkable player. He's he's been one of my favorite guys for a long time, but. There are going to be seasons where Zach Hyman's contract looks brutal. And again, my standard, my standard remains. In, in a hard-capped league, what defines a good organization for me is how effectively you can replace guys. And Hyman was replaced by the Maple Leafs with like no sweat, no risk. You know, they didn't have to go out and make a trade to do it. They signed a guy at 850K times two, and he was better for the Leafs this yeah. past year than Hyman was. In, the, in a similar role in previous seasons, that to me is not the type of guy you want to commit money and term to. Although, look, the Oilers aren't at the moment 
worried about they're that. not worried about it right now because he's playing so well but yeah they're still and they knew it when they signed up that there was a lot of downside risk on that deal of course. of course they did but hey they're getting they're getting what they wanted and hoped for right now at least but and more yeah of and course more. um the interesting thing too I, I what i'm really curious about watching this series is we always hear the kind of cliche you know the nhl is a copycat league but I, we do see that play out as well, right? Where, where certain teams have success, the rest of the league tries to ape a degree of what they're doing. And seeing these two teams with this much firepower and this much speed play in the conference finals. And look, the league is already trending towards more speed and more skill. You know, we've heard it here in Vancouver. Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin talking about we need to get faster. We need to add more speed. We've seen how the how much the Canucks struggle to match up against the really fast teams in the league this year. But I am really curious to see the degree to which this series accelerates that trend. And something I want to get into in particular is, and I know you wanted to talk about this as well, but the matchup between Kale McCarr and Devon Taves and Connor McDavid, right? Because they did, Kale McCarr and Devon Taves did a pretty credible job against Connor McDavid. And we're so used to thinking about speed as. Okay, that's an offensive asset, right? Speed is what guys who score a lot of goals have. That's what that's what you need to have. And maybe, yeah, it's good for your four checkers to be fast too, so they can really put pressure. But generally, we think of speed equals offense. But with Kale McCarr, the Colorado Avalanche might have the guy best suited to match up with Connor McDavid, and it's because of his skating. It's because of his speed. And to me, that might be the interesting takeaway, that will teams start to kind of digest and internalize the idea that speed can actually help you everywhere, right? Speed can help you do everything you want to do on the ice. It can help you defend. It can help you forecheck. It can help you transition. It can help you score. It, it's a weapon everywhere. And I think the, the Kale McCarr example and the matchup of Connor McDavid might be a really fascinating proof of concept for that. So this is a really interesting point. And, you know, McDavid for, like, it was an 8-6 game. It was an 8-6 game, and the defensive play on both sides, um, you know, is going to be talked about, as it should be, in the wake of, you know, I heard Gretzky uh, was critical yep. of the of the quality of defensive play in the game. Connor McDavid comes out of it with three points, ho-hum, another day at the office. And yet, when you look at what the Avs did against McDavid at 5-on-5, five five, you know, he played 14 minutes against that pair, that taves McCar pair, the Oilers scored one goal in those 15 minutes. Now, usually, for a shutdown pair, that's not the best night at the office. But against Connor McDavid, the goal is not... The goal isn't even to play the Oilers to a draw in McDavid's minutes. Like, you're even willing to live with getting outscored in those minutes. Yeah. You just don't want to get crushed. You just want to keep it close enough that you can win the game when... Edmonton's other lines are on the ice when special teams lines are on the ice you just don't want to get torched it's not about winning that matchup it's it's not even about playing it to a draw it's about not losing it terribly it's about not getting destroyed when 97's on the ice that line actually outscored or that pair outscored the Avs outscored the Oilers with McDavid on the ice when Taves and McCarr were were on if that holds this is going to be a short series. Yeah. This is going to be a short series. Now, I'm not saying it will, but certainly certainly puts the Avs in the driver's seat after game one and, and sort of is my biggest material takeaway from this game is while the scores were crooked and McDavid still had three points, this was, you know, at five on five anyway, the 
Avs actually did a pretty good job limiting the damage that the Oilers could do uh, with him on the ice. They didn't let him take over the game, which is what you're trying to avoid. That's kind of job one. Step one, don't let him take over the game, and they did that. Yeah, they did that. And it's pretty remarkable when you think about the offensive season that Kale McCarr had for Colorado and the goal-scoring ability and all of the offensive prowess that he has, that now he's being tasked with... You know, in partnership with Devon Taves, who's an excellent defenseman in his own right and a very, very good defender. So I don't, I don't want to say that it's all Kale McCarr, but now he's being tasked with slowing down the the best forward in the game, the best skater, the best offensive player in the game. And at least in game one, he's done a credible job of it. And I do think it has that hat. Look, you're, it's always so easy to look at the best teams and say, oh, yeah, we just got to find our version of Kale McCarr. It's like, well, that's a lot easier said than done. But I do think there's a lesson there in just when you're when you're constructing your roster and you're thinking about the types of players who can do what jobs, we often kind of think, I, I, and, you know, I hear this from Canucks fans looking at that, you know, okay, well, the Canucks have Quinn Hughes, so is Jack Rathbone redundant, right? It's like, well, just because you have one really good skater who can move the puck on your blue line It's not a box that you check and then move on. You know what I mean? And you you still need guys who can handle heavy minutes and you need guys who can kill penalties and all that. But I I don't think you have to be limited to just, okay, we've got our fast, speedy, puck-carrying defensemen. Uh, Now let's go find some bruisers. Just find guys who can do the job no matter how they get it done. So I've got a lot of thoughts here. Now, but, but before we get to those thoughts, because it has really interesting echoes for the Canucks and the draft in particular. So I want to come back to that. I want to bookmark that and we'll come All back right. to it because I want to come back to your point about the lessons of speed and the copycat potential of this series. And, you know, it exists for sure. But one thing I think will neuter it to some extent is that. NHL GMs, NHL executives, scouts, talent evaluators across the league will look at the series and be like, yeah, I mean, you'd love to have McDavid and McKinnon. But you can't find them. <laughs> we don't. Yep. So, you know, what What are we going to do? Well, we're not going to, we, we probably can't build a team to play that way entirely, right? Where I do think you're going to find an inflection point is in the event we get the Stanley Cup final series that certainly the Vegas books are most expecting which is a Tampa Bay Lightning versus Colorado Avalanche series if we get that I think this becomes a referendum series on speed in the playoffs right the Tampa Bay Lightning I I thought they'd have trouble in the Atlantic because of their lack of speed but they found ways to effectively make it make their games a half court game right Uh, a 1-3-1 with an incredibly deep set and usually six foot five defensive presence sort of neutering the neutering the dump in causing teams to have to make fancy passes almost almost approach their entries at five on five like their power play entries which leaves you exposed to you know home run cuts against the grain or rush chances the other way teams aren't familiar with that teams aren't comfortable playing that it feels risky in the moment and yeah the Tampa Bay Lightning burn their opponents if they can't get it right, right? That's that's what the Tampa Bay Lightning have done to more skilled teams that they've played to this point in the playoffs, and we'll see how it, it works against the New York Rangers. The additional item here is that the Avs, and, and even though Gerard is out, and even though they've added, you know, Eric and, well, Eric Johnson's been there forever, but Jack Johnson yep. and Josh Manson, the fact remains that the Avs defense core is built around less beefy, Quick-moving defenders, period. 
And the Tampa Bay Lightning defense is a bunch of behemoths, right? Like a bunch of guys who get kept in a cage and are fed raw meat until puck <laughs> drops. And then they come out and they're, you know, average size. I mean, Bogosian, Calfoot, um, Hedman, McDonough, right? Even Sergeyev, 6'2". You know, <laughs> like they're, they are, what did I say? Oh, Chernak, right. Oh, my goodness. 6'4". Yep. So a, a huge group of just... I mean, they're 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 an NA, they're a NFL defensive line. They're, they're linebacker sized defenders, and as such, you know, I do think there's a chance where you're going to see this series. And if the Tampa Bay Lightning can handle the Av speed, I think that places a significant premium in the minds of NHL executives on defense defender size. And all of a sudden, you're looking at a world where. You know, Derek Forbert gets the deal that he did in Boston, and Ben Chirot's going to be a $5 million player, and, you know, Tucker Pullman becomes this huge mm-hmm. sort of asset to teams and, and overpaid in free agency. And if the Avs win, you know, I wonder if guys like Brett Kulak and, you know, those puck-moving guys, Nick Letty, like those guys are going to be the big beneficiaries. It's going to be a really fascinating inflection point Stanley Cup final if it gets there. A referendum, as it were, on the impact of speed versus brawn at the highest level in the playoffs in this sport. And and that, I think, could have really far-reaching impacts, far more than I think this series will, because I really do think the lesson of this series that teams are going to take away is, wow, McDavid and McKinnon. McDavid is awesome. Incredible. I will say, though, the interesting thing is, and I, I agree, but I think there's going to be, if it is Colorado Tampa, it's going to feel like this like clash of identities and where's the future of the sport going. It's going to feel like that. I can't wait. I hope we see it because it's going to be awesome. But as much as NHL GMs will look at you know the Avs and say, oh, sure, like just build your team with McCarr and McKinnon. Ha, ha, ha. That's impossible. Well, I don't know if you can necessarily turn around and say, oh, just build the a, a structured size but also very skilled team like Tampa Bay has like that's really hard too right well it's not necessarily easier to go about doing that and Tampa's still a skilled team yeah you know I mean Nikita Kucherov and Brayden Point well and it's not like it's not like Victor Hedman's not also the best puck moving defender you'll find right it's not as if Cernak and Sergeyev and McDonough aren't incredibly skilled guys who could be PP1 quarterbacks on you know in in Sergeyev's case 20 teams in the league in McDonough's 15 and in Cernak's probably 10 Right. I mean, those are guys who could do the job in in other circumstances. So, you know, it's not to say that those guys and well, and it's also not to say that Taves and McCarr and Bowen Byram and even Sam Gerrard, when he's healthy, can't play tough. They can. They can. We're seeing it. it. It's not about that. It's just about the contrast of styles in in both cases, though, I think where you should sort of what, what, what you can emulate is the discipline with which. Those teams have benefited from, in particular, the way they structured contracts, right? Like, this Avs team is not this Avs team without the McKinnon deal mm-hmm. being done in, in precisely the way it was, right? Um, same same goes for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, that's really, for me, the big takeaway. Both teams have benefited significantly from, and it's not cost certainty in Tampa's case, because Tampa has that system. We've been over it, though the way that they bridge guys and then extend guys, but they have this like contract slotting system that has held them held really well for both clubs and has allowed them to maximize the amount of talent that they're able to fit under the cap, or in Tampa Bay's case, uh, over the cap, but in a compliant way. And that that for me is the real key. Like these teams have both perhaps better than anybody managed that side of the game 
uh, and you know, as a result, <laughs> it, put it this way: it's not a coincidence that the back-to-back Stanley Cup champions in the hard cap era are are the team that, for all of their other attributes, manages the cap better than anyone else. Like that's not a coincidence. Yeah, that's uh, the lesson for me. Um, you wanted to put a bookmark in the the point about building the defense from a Canucks perspective. Okay. So I was talking to, well, I'm always talking to people, scouts around the league about this draft class. And the Canucks are in a really interesting spot because they're picking 15th. And I think a lot of the guys that you'd most like to see the Canucks get a chance to draft are going to be gone. Like, I think Frank Nazar is probably gone. Yes. I think Lekkermacki is going to be gone by the time they pick. I think uh, I, I, you know, Cutter Gauthier, whatever. Name, name, the, name the sort of prospect that you like the most. I, I think those guys go top 12, 13, 14. And I think the Canucks are sort of just out of range of that tier of guys. And and the guy that stands out to me as the guy, and I want to put this right, because he's the guy that worries me. All right. He's the guy that worries me, not because I don't think he'll be good, but because I feel like the Canucks won't take him and he'll be, be good. And he'll be another classic WHL player who the Canucks should have picked. He was the no-brainer. Uh, and then he goes three picks after they select and becomes exactly what we knew he would be. And this is Denton Matejchuk. Okay, I was going to guess, and that wasn't even the name that I was going to guess. So Denton Matejchuk, 5'10", lefty defender, mm-hmm. high pedigree guy out of the priority selection, um, an incredibly skilled defenseman. Like, this is a defenseman, a signal caller in, in the true sense of the, sense of the word. A guy who impacts and controls play when he's on the ice, uh, in a similar vein to, to Quinn Hughes. Now, what's the one thing on the blue line that the Canucks sort of have an abundance of? Lefty guys who can skate well and generate offense, do they pick a guy who feels redundant on a team where you already have Hughes at the top end, uh, your best prospect is is Jack Rathbone, and you've also got a pretty interesting lottery ticket in Travis Dermott, who sort of also profiles a little bit similarly, albeit perhaps not with that offensive top end. Not to mention that you've got... You've got Oliver Ekman Larson. Signed forever. A, a lefty who's, you know, a puck mover at heart. So... I worry about that, but I, you know, that's a guy who, first of all, first off, I'm curious to see his value could be materially impacted by the Colorado Avalanche winning the cup. Interesting. Like that's a guy who, if he can, if the Colorado Avalanche win and the league starts to say, Hey, we need more guys like this, that could cause him to maybe jump up the rankings a few spots at the Tampa Bay lightning win. And people are like, well, you know, is that the type of defender you win with? I think that could cause him to fall a couple spots. Anyway, for me at 15, I just I think he's the best value that's likely to be left on the board for the Canucks. I think he's the best player from from talking to people I trust around the around the league, just you know, looking at the statistical comparables, looking at who I think is the best bet. He's the guy. And yet, will the Canucks be willing to approach the draft that way? I suspect they won't. Like I at the, and it might not be that they wouldn't be willing to take a lefty. It might just be that I, I suspect they're not very high on him in particular. I just that's the one that stands out to me as the diciest call facing this team ahead of the draft, and and one that historically, anyway, if 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 history is any indication, uh, the Canucks probably won't get right. Um, it is. We kind should of... give we should give the new management group a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, yeah. I guess. But I mean, the fact the fact is is that I don't expect the Canucks to take the WHL guy who I think's an obvious pick ever. So. 
the, it, so it goes. His profile does kind of, it's like created in a lab to test your commitment to best player available, right? 100%. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's like, it's easy to say best player available, but then you're sitting there staring at the guy who's best player available. And as you said, he duplicates like your one area of organizational strength. And all of a sudden, it becomes a lot easier to kind of fudge it and say, ah, well, actually, maybe we could get this guy. But look, man, there's so, when you are, when you're a team like the Canucks and you are, desperate to restock your prospect pipeline and your organizational depth. I just don't think you can be picky about the styles of players you're taking, right? Like get the guy, get him in your system, let his value blossom, figure it out down the road. Because the idea that you can project where all of Quinn Hughes, OEL, Travis Dermott, and Jack Rathbun are going to be next year, let alone two, three, four years down the road there's no way. So get the guy. Get the guy who's really, really good, who has skills that are going to be more and more valued in the NHL. Get him in your system. You'll figure it out down the road. And, and don't make the mistake of the last regime thinking you build a team through the draft. You don't. You add value through the draft. It's one of many devices to add value, graft value into your organization. You don't build a team through the draft in part because of the uncertainty that you just described. The, the projecting two, three years down the line, you have no idea what you're going to need in 2025. So don't pretend you do. Just take yeah. the BPA. You, you, it's impossible. It's anyway, literally impossible. I'm glad I got a chance to stunt on Matej Chuck. There for you me, go. For me, that's the guy the Canucks should pick. It's not a guy I expect the Canucks to pick. It's probably not even a guy we'll discuss a ton as the draft approaches. But I, I do think that's a, a quandary that the club faces and that's sort of illustrated in part by what we're seeing in the Western Conference Final. Uh, enjoy Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Final tonight. You can hear it here on 650 at 5 o'clock. The People Show is up next. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.